Leadership beyond a definition. The boundless potential to engage, to encourage, uplift, and guide. Conversations about growth. Leadership Unscripted with Dr. Virginia Hardy. I am your host, Virginia Hardy, and welcome to the Leadership Unscripted, Navigating Your Leadership Journey. Joining me today is Mr. John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation, a Raleigh-based grant maker that supports public policy organizations, educational institutions, arts and cultural programs, and humanitarian relief in North Carolina and beyond. John has also helped to found the John Locke Foundation in 1989 and served as its president from 1995 to 2014. He later also served as chairman of the board at the John Locke Foundation from 2015 to 2021. Since 1986, John has written a syndicated column on politics and public policy for North Carolina newspapers that currently appears regularly in the Winston-Salem Journal, the Greensboro News and Record, Asheville Citizen Times. He is a frequent commentator for radio and television stations and teaches at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy. John is the author of eight books, the latest of which is a Revolutionary War-themed historical fantasy novel entitled Mountain Folk. His other books include Catalyst, Jim Martin and the Rise of North Carolina Republicans in 2015, Our Best Foot Forward, an investment plan for North Carolina's economic recovery in 2012, Selling the Dream, while advertising is good business in 2005, Investor Politics in 2001, The Heroic Enterprise, Business and the Common Good in 1996, and two volumes of Family History. John, welcome to Leadership Unscripted. We're glad to have you. Let's just start with, you and I uh, both completed the Bill Friday Fellowship called Wild Acres Leadership Initiative, um, and we did it at different times, but both had, a, uh, I think both had really good experiences. Um, I still interact with a lot of the folks who did the WLI. What about you, and how did, and how did WL, the WLI impact you and um, where you are today? I was in the inaugural class of uh, Friday Fellows, which have been in the mid-90s. Um, it was a time when I was just transitioning from what we might call second-in-command to the leader of the institution that I worked for at the time. So it was well-timed in the sense that it gave me some ways of kind of stretching my legs and thinking through what leadership would mean in, in my life. And for the most part, I would say that the lessons that I learned during the Friday Fellowship play a role in how I conduct my life today. Also spend a lot of time interacting with people that I met not just during my two years as a Friday fellow, but also subsequent fellows from subsequent classes. Um, I was on the board, the advisory board uh, of the organization for a while. So spent some time on the selection process. I participated in several subsequent uh, processes for selecting Friday fellows, which was itself uh, educational. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and. Uh, because I did the Friday Fellowship, that, that led me to do other leadership programs, not so much participating, but designing them and running them. And so part of my career after the Friday Fellowship involved creating and leading leadership programs. They, they weren't 
aimed at the same uh, constituencies. They, they weren't done in exactly the same way, but I certainly borrowed elements of the Friday Fellowship experience that were valuable uh, in other contexts. And so on, in this way and in a number of other ways, that experience was valuable to me. It built on an experience I had when I was at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill as an undergraduate. And for me, that was in the mid to late 1980s. That was at the tail end of uh, Mr. Friday's presidency of the University of North Carolina system and when I first met him. And in fact, uh, the first significant interaction I had with him was when I had uh, spent several years on campus. I had created a student magazine on campus, Mm -hmm. and we had an incident where I can't remember what month it was, but one wintry month, we had just distributed copies of the magazine to all the drop boxes and places that it was distributed around campus. Somebody who didn't agree with our political philosophy uh, mm-hmm. came behind us and threw them all away. Ooh. Ooh. And uh, when we went to the administration to complain, their answer was, I'm not kidding you, and I, you will appreciate this as a university administrator. Yeah. The answer, unfortunately, was, well, isn't your publication free? And we said, <laughs> yeah. And they said, well, then there's nothing we can do. <gasps> oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, the person who didn't agree with that take was, I, I think by then, the recently retired President uh, Bill Friday. Yes. Who expressed... Uh, very different sentiment and it was very welcome but anyway i uh, mm-hmm. spent some time over the years with with mr friday on various projects we had some common interests on for example the uh, creation of a state lottery which we both opposed mm-hmm. for somewhat different reasons but we did both oppose it and so we worked together with some other folks to create a coalition to combat the enactment of the state lottery and it it worked until it didn't <laughs> but yes. uh-huh. it was a it was a productive uh, uh, way to invest time. Anyway, that was one of the ways I got to know him better. I was also on his program, North Carolina People, a couple of times, and so uh, so the Bill Friday experience, which included him personally, and also the the leadership program, had a real real effect on me. You know, and um, I too had the opportunity to get to know um, to Mr. Friday as well, um, and. Not, not as much as you did through your experience at Carolina, but through, um, through the fellowship and uh, really became good friends with him and, uh, and being able to, to meet with him one-on-one and learn from him was hugely beneficial. So I completely understand there. And I too uh, really do believe that that, that that fellowship impacted some of the, uh, my foundation and helped to build me up. So now, now, John, you you've done a lot, and we're going to talk get to talk about a lot of that um, during our time this morning. Uh, but one of the things you, you have a, a a column, a regular column, and we get that column here in the local paper in Greenville. And I read your um, your column each time. One because I know you, and two because your your column always makes me think. I don't always agree. I don't always agree with everything you say. A lot of it I do, um, but. That's what leaders do. Leaders hopefully help people to think and think a bit differently uh, and facilitate conversations around an issue and hopefully, um, you know, um, have some good dialogue around that particular issue. So share with us a little bit about your own leadership journey and how you, in in this journey, how you've defined leadership. 
Well, it's a it's a great and tough question because <laughs> leadership is not a single thing. Right. It's a bundle of skills and experiences and choices that people make. So a, a, a very simple definition of leadership is simply it's a condition in which you have followers. <laughs> I know that sounds like a tautology, but if you think about it, ultimately leadership is about getting people to follow you. And you can have you you can be a good leader in the sense of getting people to follow you. You can also be a good leader in the sense of getting people to to follow you in a productive direction. Mm-hmm. And this is where uh, the ambiguity of our words sometimes can trip us up. I don't know if you've ever seen the musical Wicked. Yes. Uh, which is a, a fantastic riff on what it means to be wicked. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between good and evil and how people understand it? I mean, of course, it's also just an iteration of The Wizard of Oz, but yeah. the, the yes. more significant and sophisticated uh, messaging, which I think is is very powerful in that musical, is think very carefully of what you mean by certain words. And there's a there's a song at the end, I don't know if I've changed for the better, but I've been changed for good. Mm. meaning in that case permanently so we use the term good to mean better you know the opposite of evil right we use it to mean the opposite of ineffective Mm -hmm. and we use it to mean the opposite of temporary Mm -hmm. and when we think about good leadership all three of those things are going on you can have a very good leader in the sense of getting people to follow you and that person can himself be evil as we have unfortunately experienced so many times in our history of our people, of Mm -hmm. our species, uh, people can be very effective at leading folks over a cliff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And and then also we can have people who are good leaders in the sense that they have good intentions and they mean well and we share their goals, but they're ineffective. They don't get people to follow them. So they're attempting to lead, but they're really succeeding. And we can also have people who are really more like situational leaders, they step forward at a particular moment because someone has to direct the traffic. You know, there's been an accident, and if no one steps forward to direct the traffic, there could be additional uh, injuries or damage. So someone steps forward, but it's not a lasting change in people's lives. It's necessary, but it's not the kind of good leadership that we often uh, exemplify or try to emulate, which is people leaders who change things for the for the good mm-hmm. for for permanent uh, permanently so but long rambling answer to your question uh, leadership is when you have followers it's true though correct and correct. one of the things i think about all the time and i use this image sometimes in presentations that i make is if you think about a a drum major or someone who's leading a band um in a way, you are, in fact, leading the band. If you were marching down the street and you are walking backwards and you're looking back at your band and you're conducting them and you're signaling them, uh, you are paying great attention to them, you're making sure that they uh, stay with the group, you're making sure that they stay in harmony, all good. But the problem is that you're walking backwards, Mm-hmm. So you actually aren't, you can't see where you're going. <laughs> and so there, there is a famous uh, saying that to lead people, you sometimes have to turn your back on people. And 
quite literally, that's what happens mm-hmm. if you're leading a band uh, and you don't exactly know where you're going. You better turn around and walk forward uh-huh. and hope that they're following behind you. That's really leadership that's aimed towards the future rather than looking backward toward the past. But it also means that a leader has to be willing to take risks. Um, a leader is not the same thing as making everybody happy. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a company or a school club or a university or a sports team or any other kind of group that you're trying to lead, you certainly want people to be engaged. You want them to be doing their best work to accomplish your common end. But if you're spending all your time looking at them and watching their faces and simply trying to make sure they're smiling all the time, you might be leading them over a cliff because your back is turned towards the future. So that's the kind of uh, thought that germinated with me during the Friday Fellowship, during some of the other leadership experiences I had as a young person, and the kinds of lessons that I still try to apply today. And it's particularly important for me because I am by nature someone who likes to make people happy, believe it or not. <laughs> you, you, you read my column, so I'm sure this is puzzling. Yes. <laughs> but, the truth, but the truth is that in, in interpersonal situations and when I'm leading organizations, I, I am attuned. I, 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 it bothers me when somebody's upset. It bothers me when someone doesn't seem to do the job well. I usually think it's my fault. and I try mm-hmm. to fix them. I try mm-hmm. to move them around. Um, mm-hmm. So my, my tendencies are not necessarily to turn my back on my team in a, in a figurative sense. And sometimes that's what you've got to do for the, for the sake of the task, for the sake of the goal. you got to make tough decisions. You've got to tell people what they don't want to hear. Um, an example that I use, and this is, again, happened early in my life. Actually, uh, around the time I was in the Friday Fellowship, I also was spending some time at that point in the mid-90s working in Washington. I had gotten a, a year-long fellowship to write a book. So I was at a, a public policy organization in Washington, and in the office suite with me were two individuals who uh, became a lot more famous than I ever will. <laughs> and one of them was Tucker Carlson, who I'll just oh, yeah. leave that sitting. But the other one was a, a fellow named Stephen Glass, who was a young writer at the time at the magazine uh, where I was situated. And he knew that I had previously worked at a magazine in Washington called The New Republic. Mm-hmm. And so he asked me to lunch one day and said, I've got a great opportunity to go over and become a reporter at the New Republic, but I need to know more about the place. I'm just not sure I'm up to it. And as a young person who hadn't spent a lot of time managing people, coaching people, I thought it was my, my duty at that time to simply book him up. Mm-hmm. You know, the sun will come out tomorrow. You know, you'll, <laughs> you'll be great. No problem. You'll be swell. You could have all the world on a plate, that kind of stuff. That's what I did. Uh-huh. And he kept expressing his, what was obviously deep-seated sort of feelings of inadequacy and what we might today call imposter syndrome. Yep. I've gotten somewhere, but I don't really deserve it. Mm-hmm. And I just kept saying, yes, you do. You're great. You're fantastic. You're wonderful. And that really wasn't what this fellow needed. Right. But that's what he got from me and probably from other people. So he went off to the New Republic and proceeded to feel so inadequate that he began to make things up. Mm-hmm. And he concocting entire stories out of his imagination, uh, pretending that it was real, to the point where the editors would check his facts and he would invent fictitious people and have answering machines for them and all that, just so oh, that he wow. could 
looked like he was the greatest reporter in the world. And this became one of the great sort of journalism scandals of America. Yeah. Uh, got its own movie uh-huh. called Shattered Glass, which is all about Stephen Glass's decline and fall. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I'm not portrayed in the movie because it would be very unflattering. <laughs> yeah. But it is an experience that I had, which is um, give people, as you're, if you're a leader in a small environment or a big one, give people what you believe they need, mm-hmm. not necessarily what they want. So, but to be able to do that, to determine between um, giving people what they need um, as opposed to what they want requires the leader, in my opinion, to be um, uh, pretty discerning and, and aware, not only of him or herself, but of the individual to whom they're, they're, with whom they're working. And that's, that takes some skill and knowledge and experience, I think. I think you're absolutely right. I think you can learn to do that better over time through instruction or experience. I also think, though, there are people who are kind of naturally gifted at that. Mm-hmm. And those tend to be, as long as they have some other important skills bundled up together, those tend to be effective leaders, those who can really, truly read people well. Again, doesn't mean that you spend all your time counseling everybody as if right. some sort of, you know, psychologist-in-chief mm-hmm. or something. But it is important to at least be able to do that or have somebody on your team who can do that. Yeah. Uh, and it's also important, this is true in all walks of life, as you well know, uh, if you're going to think that as a leader, your job is to give people what they need and not necessarily what they want, you are sometimes going to get that wrong. You're going to make a bad call and you've got to be willing to admit that and accept the fact that you're, that you're flawed and you're going to make mistakes. And sometimes your attempt to give people what they need instead of what they want will not come across as... Um, as inspirational leadership, it will make you look like a jerk. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so you have to be, uh, you, you have to, again, be willing to hurt people's feelings sometimes yeah. in, in their greater interest. But also, you have to be willing to admit when, when that was when you were wrong. They knew better than you did. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> they, they, they kept asking you for what they needed, and you didn't give it to them because you and your arrogance thought you knew better. This is a balancing act that any parent is already used to. Uh-huh. The difference is that when you parent an eight-year-old or an eighteen-year-old, which is still pretty challenging, um, you, you have a you have a inherently a parental relationship. There there is a subservient the child of you, and when you try to apply that same model to grown-ups, people who are not related to you, you can come across again sort of patronizing when what you're really trying to do is get the best effort from each person on your team to accomplish your goal, which is ultimately what effective leaders do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so you, you, I'm, I'm going to try to unpack a lot of what you had shared, so give me a second here. Um, one, words matter. Um, very careful to be careful what you say and how you use those words in, in regards to communication, but also as a leader. But one of the things you talked about here was um, the notion of good leaders not um, who can lead people off a cliff, but they're still good leaders in this whole use of the word good. We, we have a, um, a leadership development academy here at the university, and one of the things we talk about with our um, participants, which are normally employees, but we also have one that's related for students. And we have, that, we have a discussion which each of those groups, and it's interesting to hear them 
process this question, which is, was Hitler a good leader? Was he a leader? And if so, was he a good leader? And to hear people's comments around that, uh, that when you, as you were talking about good leaders who lead people off a cliff, um, what's your take on that? Because hearing an 18, 19, 20-year-old talk about it versus a 40, 50, 60-year-old is, uh, is really quite interesting. But what's your take on that based upon your earlier comments? Well, I, I, I appreciate that question so much that I actually use it every year as part of okay. the selection process for a leadership program that I run. Mm-hmm. Actually, part of the selection process involves a group dialogue. So in addition to people being individually interviewed, we, we gather the finalists in a group, in a, literally in a circle, and I ask them some rather provocative questions and then watch what they say. It's not so much whether I get the right answer or not, because I don't right. think there is necessarily a right uh-huh. answer. It's to see how people want to engage each other in groups, the group dynamics. Who's the blabbermouth? Mm-hmm. Who's the wallflower? You know, who's the peacemaker? Yeah. Who's the provocateur? Which is, of course, me. <laughs> uh, so so I, I like that question a lot uh, because it, it allows us to think through these different dimensions. I mean, in a sense, of course, Adolf Hitler was an effective leader because he aspired to lead a large and sprawling and rather sort of unruly country in a direction, and he succeeded in doing so. Um, now, this is a gross uh, analogy in some ways, because I don't want to trivialize the evil that, that he did and that Germany and its allies did under his leadership. But this is not, of a, in, a, in a sense, categorically, this is similar to you root for the bulls, um, but you can you can appreciate that the Lakers have a good coach. Uh-huh. So the, the coach can be effective in coaching the team that you hope will lose, which means that you can still learn something about effective coaching from the coach of the Lakers, even though you're, you're not actually rooting for that team to win. Now, in a historical context, context of the clash of civilizations of the 20th century, the stakes, of course, are far higher and graver. But nevertheless, Hitler was a master of, uh, of, it seems odd to us watching his speeches because they seem so weird and Mm off-putting, but to his audience at the moment, they were very effective. And he he also, he and his, his team of ghouls, also mastered modern technologies like radio and mm-hmm. motion pictures yeah. uh, and photography. And so there's a lot of things that you can learn from studying the rise of Hitler that could be valuable in an obviously far more benign context. Of course, in a very basic sense, he was one of the worst leaders in the history of the world right. because he effectively led his people so far astray to their own detriment Mm-hmm. The detriment of millions of others. Yeah, I could talk about that one for for quite a while, John. But I guess I should move on. <laughs> but I love that. So you talked, you mentioned about leaders, um, of course, having followers. So let's let's talk a bit about followership. What's your take um, on this notion of followership? And um, and then I want to come back and ask you a question using um, an analogy we, we used to use in the fellow in the Wild Acres Fellowship. But what's your what, what do you think about followership and how do we get people as leaders to follow, but then um, cultivate that followership because there's some leadership in there too. I think 
with the followers. Yes, there is. Uh, there, there is a famous video that people, if they haven't ever seen it, they can, they can find it online that has to do with this question of followership. It shows a, it, it shows a, a sort of spontaneous dance happening on a, on a hillside at a concert. Yep, I've seen it. And, yeah, and so the, the, the band is playing and someone gets up and starts to, starts to do a rather uh, uncoordinated but rather entertaining mm-hmm. dance. Uh-huh. And then someone else gets up and dances with him. And that is called in the video, the first follower. And the first follower is a kind of a leader in the sense that you didn't initiate the activity, but what you're hoping is the the first follower is to get other people to follow your lead so that instead of one person dancing uh, spontaneously and erratically, Mm -hmm. or two people dancing spontaneously and erratically, it's an entire group of people enjoying themselves. Yeah. on the hillside mm-hmm. so I, I've always thought that image was rather striking because we, we tend to distinguish between leaders and followers and I think that's reasonable but it's only sort of a distinction that makes sense at a particular moment in time uh, we are all followers most of our lives and we are leaders some of our lives so mm-hmm. we're, we spend a lot more time being followers than we are as leaders it doesn't matter what our, what our role is in some formal hierarchical organization Think about your family, your church, your mm-hmm. club, your friendship circle, your, your employer, whatever. Mm-hmm. There are many, many moments when you're the follower. And I've, also, I've often thought that we spend so much time teaching people uh, to be good leaders. You need to think about some ways to inculcate an ethic of being a good follower. Mm-hmm. Uh, because being a good follower doesn't mean being slavish, being you know excessively... Uh, emulative, so that we simply do whatever our leader tells us to do. That's being a bad follower. A right. good follower uh, is a critical thinker. A good follower is someone who, who pauses for a moment and says, yeah, okay, I'll follow you, as opposed to just sort of instantly following a command. Mm-hmm. And I think followership is an underappreciated idea that we need to spend some more time on and get people to think more critically about you can see it right now in our political environment. Mm-hmm. You can see it in, in many uh, social problems that we have. Yeah. Um, it's not unrelated to, the, unfortunately, the events of the past couple of years have, have reinforced for people who don't already appreciate this the, the tremendous temptation that human beings have to be part of a mob. Mm-hmm. It, it's just the way we're made, like it or not, is that we, we can be perfectly sensible people. And we get into a group and the emotions start to run wild, and some leader, probably a good slash evil leader, <laughs> uh, breaks the first window, you know, charges the first barricade, and you know, beats up the first passersby. Uh-huh. And other people kind of strangely and, and nefariously join in to something yeah. they would never have dreamed that morning that they were going to do. That's part of human nature, and we got to accept that that's true, and that means that as as followers, it's our job to to to, to pause. We feel our emotions dwelling within us, and it leads us to do something dramatic. Uh-huh. Uh, my view is this is about the time when you need to dial down the volume. Yeah, I'm not against being emotional and ecstatic when the mood strikes you. You know, if you're about to get married, I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Birth of your child, absolutely. You know, religious experience, go to it. But 
lots of bad things happen when people get carried away with their emotions. And human beings succeed when we channel our angers, our fears, our loves, etc., channel them productively through relationships and institutions that are designed to basically tell us, and this is not some original coining of my terms, but basically don't just do something, stand there. Uh, uh-huh, yep. Uh, sometimes <laughs> the best thing to do is to, is to do nothing. Yep, is to stand there. So you, yeah, is to click, think through it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. There's a horrible thing happening, do something, is sometimes warranted. There, there is a baby waddling into the street, do yeah. something, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. But most of the time when, when we feel this emergency, this panic to, quote, do something in, in an emotional state, it's going to end poorly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, but, but John, but John, with that, um, and and I'm flash. I have flashbacks right now. <laughs> um, in my in certain situations here at the university, when I've stood there, because it was an emotionally charged situation, and while everybody, in this case, the public wanted action, and they wanted a certain action. Um, there wasn't an action at that particular time because we were standing to get a feel for everything before making, before taking whatever that necessary action was. But in doing so, it put, um, it made people um, mistrust, distrust uh, the institution, the administration. And when action was actually taken, it wasn't, it was timely and I think appropriate and effective, but between those those hours, um, it, it, it left a bitter taste in certain people's mouths. And to try to, you know, navigate that and manage all of that is, um, takes skill and patience and, uh, and, as I like to say, being the duck and letting stuff roll off your back. Uh, but it takes, us, it takes some courage in, in to, to stand still. It, it absolutely does, Virginia, and, and uh, you just cannot make everybody happy with you all the time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, it, it, the way we usually hear that in the context of leadership is, sometimes you just got to make a quick, decisive decision, and you mm-hmm. can't make everybody happy. Well, that's true. Sometimes you, you do require right. a quick, decisive decision. But it's also true that lots of times, quick, decisive decisions come back to bite you. Mm-hmm. And unless you genuinely have, you know, the immediate public safety uh, Mm -hmm. at stake, my view is always, let's talk about this a little bit more. Let's think about this a little bit more. You might regret something. This is true from actions and even from, from statements. Think about the number of times in the last 20, 25 years. There's been some news event. And immediately people rush to the microphones or later their, their Twitter feeds and they immediately start blathering on about this and that and the other and they don't really know what has happened yet. Uh, you know, people are identified as suspects in a crime and are ultimately, they weren't even there. Uh, th- there are uh, incidences that seem very outrageous and they are outrageous, but it turns out that the person who reported it actually concocted it. It was a, it was a hoax. Mm-hmm. And so many incidences like that. Think about that fellow, I can't remember his name, Richard Jewell maybe, who was 
accused of doing the bombing oh, yeah. at the Olympics. Remember mm-hmm. that? In Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And ultimately he was exonerated. There was yep. a movie made about it later. Mm-hmm. But people were absolutely convinced that he was the villain based upon sort of instantaneous jump to conclusions. we got to give somebody an answer because they need decisive action mm-hmm. kind of thinking that I do not believe is the hallmark of a good leader. Again, every rule has exceptions. And if you're on a battlefield, if you're in the middle of a, you know, unfolding accident, health mm-hmm. emergency, something like that, the decisiveness is needed even if you get it wrong. But most of the time, the panic that people feel, the demand for immediate action, I demand a statement from the chancellor right now, yep. is... It's simply unwarranted and it's unwise. It's part of our makeup. I can say all this and then something will happen, and I may be one of the people saying, why hasn't Virginia said anything? It's been 30 minutes. (laughs) And I just think we all have to resist the the temptation to jump to conclusions. So often the conclusions are mistaken. We're we're seeing, for example, I mean, this is just one example, and I don't want to get too much into current affairs or anything, but... Mm -hmm. Last year, when the pandemic was first unfolding, uh, then-President Trump did a travel ban, mm-hmm. and people immediately attacked him for yep. um, mm-hmm. uh, engaging in essentially racial animus, right. not really a public health uh, mm-hmm. action. And we can debate whether the travel ban did anything or not, but it was people's immediate reaction. And President Biden has just done a travel ban in reaction to the Omicron variant that's been identified in Southern Africa. And the the roles have reversed. And suddenly that's a a wise decision. Uh And then Biden's critics, oh, he's overreacting. And I just wish everybody would just dial it all down. These are very serious Mm -hmm. issues. And... People mm-hmm. are doing the best they can given limited information. That's right. And, and quickly changing information. Quickly changing information. Things that we think are true that don't mm-hmm. turn out to be true. Not everything is they lie. Correct. <laughs> it's false. It's false because, other, because subsequent information mm-hmm. improved our understanding of the situation. So yeah. if someone says something, turns out to be inaccurate. doesn't mean that person concocted it, made it up, told a lie. Because mean they got it wrong, and that distinction is so very important. Yeah, yeah, and and we don't do that. We don't do that enough to make that distinction. We just don't. All right. So John. So yes, and, and also, and by the way, and also, when we when we say when a leader says something turns out to be inoperative, mm-hmm. as a PR person might put it, uh-huh. uh, turns out to be wrong. Yep. Uh, if we always say, well, that that leader is a liar. The problem is that we devalue. It's like the boy who cries wolf. We uh-huh. devalue the accusation he is a liar. You know what, Virginia? There really are liars, like really bald-faced mm-hmm. liars. And if you call everybody a liar all the time <laughs> and they get something wrong, then you let the wolf yes. slip through. And yes, no indeed. The, the, the charge anymore. That's correct. Very true. Very true. Gosh. John, we're not going to have enough time, John. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Um, so let's let's talk a bit about um, about you and you and John Locke, the John Locke Foundation. So you helped to to found it uh, to, and, um, in nineteen eighty nine, I believe, and was president from ninety five to just what a few years ago, twenty fourteen. So talk a bit about what the impetus was for um, for starting it, the foundation over thirty years ago, and how has the foundation changed over the years, if if any. The John Locke Foundation uh, 
is a state-focused public policy institute. Mm -hmm. There have been lots of groups nationally. Uh, most people date the, the creation of the first public policy think tank to the Brookings Institution, which was created oh, during yeah. World War One, mm -hmm. and still in operation in Washington. A little bit later, in the 1940s or late 30s, the organization was called the American Enterprise Association. Later renamed American Enterprise Institute. That's also still in operation in Washington. And then in the 60s and 70s, there was a there was a wave of other think tanks, left, right, and center, created in Washington and to some extent elsewhere. But what's happening by the 1980s is that the energy, when it comes to researching public policy, writing about it, commenting about it, holding events and conversations and debates and those kinds of acts, publishing books, that activity began to move towards states. Uh, this was just sort of a natural progression to some extent. Mm -hmm. But also by the 1980s, there was a lot of, at this time, bipartisan belief in Washington that Washington was trying to dictate terms too much and that states and localities should have a little bit more agency about what's going on in, in American government. And the think tank industry, there is one, yeah. <laughs> I spent most of my life in it, uh, decided they began to create similar entities in state capitals. North Carolina already had one such entity called the North Carolina Center for Public Policy Research, mm -hmm. created some years earlier. And the folks that I got together with, I was working at the New Republic at the time in Washington, and there were some folks in North Carolina, and I decided to come back and help them start the John Locke Foundation. Our idea was to do a similar kind of think tank model based in Raleigh, focused on North Carolina. We were conservatives and libertarians, people who were interested in smaller government, uh, more uh, local control, more consumer control in areas like healthcare and education, things like that. So those are the issues that we were interested in. Those are the issues the John Locke Foundation is still interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked through several years of setting up the, the programs and, and publications of the organization. Uh, we, from the very beginning, sponsored monthly luncheons where we brought in speakers from from the national scene to come and talk about politics and public policy had a variety of different speakers in those early days and created what became carolina journal which is a uh, roughly monthly print publication and daily news and a commentary website carolinajournal.com uh, which was designed to be another media outlet we, we were early in the business of Nonprofit media outlets, uh, funding uh, media outlets through contributions rather than advertising or subscription mm -hmm. revenue, uh, which is, in my opinion, became an, has become an indispensable way of filling news gaps that would otherwise exist. Yeah. Uh, newspapers were, and I spent my early life working in newspapers and still write a column for newspapers. Mm -hmm. New, newspapers were absolutely essential in the media ecosystem in developing news covering city councils and county commissions and school boards and legislatures and other media outlets can do lots of things but it requires somebody to sit in a room or at least watch a feed and ask questions and do reporting and that's something that we started to do in our shop back in the 90s covering elements of state government that didn't get as much attention like the utilities commission and the courts and com legislative committees and things like that. There are lots of other entities that do that now, which I'm very happy about. Mm -hmm. So the Locke Foundation was created, opened our doors in early 1990. It's still going strong. 
after 25 years, I made a transition uh, to what we might call the other side of the table. Yeah. So, so I spent <laughs> most of my life uh, begging people for money. And now my day job as president of the Pope Foundation is to give money away. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it is less stressful job in some ways. It's not an easy job. I mean, it's very easy to give money away, actually, but it's very challenging to give it away effectively. Mm-hmm. And that's what we try to do. The WLI focus on North Carolina. And the, the Locke Foundation um, has a, a fellowship for emerging leaders. Which, which prepares North Carolinians for leadership roles in the public and private sectors. So talk about why you see that that's still a need for uh, helping young leaders or emerging leaders in, um, in the state of North Carolina. Yes, well, the, the program you mentioned at the Locke Foundation is called the, the E.A. Morris Fellowship for Emerging Leaders. Ed Morris was a significant business leader in North Carolina in the mid to late 20th century. Uh, he was with basically what we would call today Wrangler Jeans. He was in the mm. jeans business. Okay. And one of the things he did was pioneer the marketing of jeans. He, he's, he's one of the guys that came up with the idea of getting you know, cowboys to, mm-hmm. you know, to endorse jeans and celebrities and uh-huh. things like that. But anyway, he was, a, he was an interesting person. The Ian Morris fell, uh, Foundation that uh, bears his name as one of the funders of the fellowship that we do. Uh, and we do aim that at... at North Carolinians between the ages of 25 and 40, which is similar to the way the Wild Acres Leadership Initiative is created. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we do a little bit shorter time frame. A lot of people can't do two, two years right. of leadership training. So we do a, a single year, and we do some other unique things. So I, I spend some of my time doing the Morris Fellowship, which is aimed at, at emerging leaders. I also chair the board of the North Carolina Institute of Political Leadership, IOPL, IOPL is a different animal. IOPL is, honestly, just trying to train people to run for office or serve in a point of jobs in government. So it's very much oriented towards candidates and getting elected. What do you do when you get elected? Uh, How to fill out campaign finance reports. Mm -hmm. How to make a speech in front of an audience. How to handle a pesky newspaper reporter like me. (laughs) Uh, So we we do a lot of very practical things with IOPL for people who want to be involved in politics in some fashion. Whereas the Morris Fellowship is for all sorts of different kinds of roles, from educational to, mm-hmm. to business to law firms to healthcare institutions, nonprofits. And the other thing I do with leadership, because that's not enough, is I'm also a co chair of a group called the North Carolina Leadership Forum. Now, unlike the first two, this is not a training program, this is a convening of leaders who already are leaders in mm-hmm. North Carolina. This is based through Duke University. We convene about three dozen leaders every year from all across the state, different walks of life, political philosophies, racial, ethnic, uh, geographic diversity. Mm-hmm. And we bring them together to talk about a challenging topic. For example, this year our topic is healthcare access. But we, our real fundamental purpose there is to build social relationships among North Carolina's leaders. Our view is that leadership is so important in so many ways. One of the ways it's important is that it, it, it consists of social cues. So we can all be upset about how our political process is so uh, partisan and screaming matches. And it's not very constructive and it turns people off. And I, I agree with that. I bet you agree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a chicken and egg argument. Is 
do, do politicians act the way they do because that's the way the voters want it? Or do voters come to like and appreciate mm-hmm. and emulate when leaders do these right. kind of leadership? And our view is that the leaders have agency. Leaders, if they change their behavior, they have followers and people will follow them. Yep. So we focus on improving the political dialogue by focusing on leaders. Uh-huh. And that's that's what we're trying to do with that program. So we're, whether it's a 25-year-old who's just starting out or maybe a 35 or 40 or whatever age, doesn't matter, who might say, well, I've been a leader in my community for a time. Now I'm going to run for school board. That's an IOPL kind of a moment. Yeah. Or whether it's someone who's already been a leader for 10 or 15 or 20 years. And what they really need is they need more connections with other leaders across the state, which is what our North Carolina Leadership Forum is about. Mm-hmm. In all of this continuum of leadership work, um, I still try to um, model the behavior that I'm hoping people will follow, mm-hmm. which is have opinions, have strong opinions. Yep. As you may know, mm-hmm. I have strong opinions. <laughs> <laughs> but, just but a little bit, opinions. just a little yeah, bit, John. <laughs> here or there, you know, mostly about Star Trek. But, <laughs> but my view about that is our problem is in America today, in North Carolina today, it's not that we disagree too much. It's that we disagree poorly. Correct. Right. We... we one of the ways we describe our purpose at the Leadership Forum is we want people to stop bickering mm-hmm. so they can have a good argument. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I don't even need to explain that distinction because I bet you already can. Yes, indeed. That works. And if we could get that to happen, actually, it would be much more um, helpful and healthier if we were able to do that. And I tell people all the time, healthy dialogue and disagreement is a beautiful thing. I love it, actually. Uh, we don't all have to agree. So, so John, with, with that in mind, um, describe a bit how you've been able to navigate all of this, right, and negotiate across the political spectrum, uh, across it, um, and especially to do um, or share what you think is what's right for the state of North Carolina. And you've done it for years, in my, and you've done it beautifully. Uh, so how have you been able to do that? Well, that's very kind of you to say, and I am working on it. I've been working <laughs> on it for a long time. Uh, it, it isn't just Bill Friday. A number of other people that I met when I was young mm-hmm. have helped to serve as models for what I try to do. You know, Mr. Friday, I think we had a lot of conversations over the years, and I think it is genuinely because he was curious about me. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was curious about him. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, in case people don't know this, if you were mapping political views, made a list of my political positions and Bill Friday's political positions, they would overlap like maybe twice. You know? <laughs> we did not have very common politically. Right. But that's what I think he found interesting. Yeah. He wanted to, why, why does this weird kid, John Hood, why does he think this uh-huh. stuff? He wanted to know, and I wanted to understand from his perspective why he believed what he believed. And I, I mentioned that example because I just think curiosity mm-hmm. is such an important trait to cultivate. It also comes naturally, but sometimes we tend to kind of suppress curiosity because it, it can distract us from our immediate purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always want to act like we know all the answers. Yeah. Who doesn't? Mm-hmm. You know, it makes you feel important like you should be in charge it's the it's the remedy to imposter syndrome yeah. is to kind of suppress your curiosity and assume you already know the answers uh-huh. or at least pretend that you know the answers 
But I think that when people are genuinely curious about each other, not, I'm going to listen to what you say for the purpose of tearing it apart, which is a different kind of listening. I'm, I'm listening for your weakest link, your weakest moment. You make three arguments. The dumbest argument is the one I pay most attention to because I'm going to pounce on it. Yep. That's one way of listening. I've done that. I've done political debate on television for much of my life. And mm-hmm. That was part of my job was to do that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but that's not really active listening in a way that is constructive in the long run. The best thing to do in the situation I just described is to listen most closely to the strongest argument of the other person. Because that's the one that's going to challenge you the most. Maybe you're wrong. Or at least you've got a part of it wrong. Or at least to engage intellectually with someone's strongest Mm -hmm. alternative view, not their weakest one, is kind of like exercising your brain. Uh, The brain is, at least metaphorically speaking, a muscle, just like your calf, Mm -hmm. bicep. And when you don't exercise, we've all had this experience where we went through a period we didn't exercise very much, and we had to run, we had to lift something heavy, and boy, did it hurt. <laughs> and when you don't exercise your brain, and when leaders do not exercise their brains by engaging not with the, the, the weirdest pushovery people on the other side, but with the most challenging, effective, impressive advocates on the other side. When you don't do that, you, your brain gets limp and flaccid. It doesn't work very well because you haven't tested it. Right. So much of the time, if you watch politics through the prism of like Twitter or social media or the, the nighttime cable TV news mm-hmm. programs, which I would not advise anybody, by the way, but if you were to do any of that, what you will see is an endless parade of what is called nutpicking. It's called what, Instead John? Of Instead of nitpicking, this is called nutpicking. Nutpicking, gotcha. And the idea is to find the, the, the most outlandish, indefensible thing that somebody on the other side, quote, 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 uh-huh. uh, said, and then spend an hour talking about how yep. stupid that was. <laughs> and yeah, I probably said something stupid in the last half hour. <laughs> if you really wanted to take it out, you know, take that sentence out of context and spend an hour making fun of me, you probably could. Uh-huh. What's the point of that? Right. You don't accomplish anything. Nutpicking is one of the many ills of our political discourse that we've got to get over. Instead of just, I mean, obviously, whenever anybody makes a speech, there's a possibility they're going to mangle a word. Some people mangle them more than others. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when you speak off the cuff, you say what you didn't mean. Sometimes when you don't know the microphone is on, you're sort of (laughs) processing something and you're talking it out with a friend. Yeah. And, you know, a half hour later, you realize what you were saying was dumb. Because sometimes that's how we actually write, reason our way to the right answer is that we verbalize a bunch of wrong answers. But if there's a microphone and it's caught and then it becomes a, a meme, yep. then you've ruined the opportunity for a real dialogue. For real so that, dialogue. that's what we try to do in, in a lot of the projects that I work on is be care, genuinely curious about other people, care about them. Mm-hmm. Don't use them as means to your end. You never know, by the way. If you if you treat somebody shabbily, you actually may need them later. Yes. <laughs> they will not be available to you. So yes. even if you're strictly a Machiavellian kind of, you know, uh-huh. manipulate people to your end, it is still unwise to treat people 
like that. Yeah. Because you're going to turn them off, and at some point in the future, they may be they may have the answer to the question that you that you're asking. You know, and and I don't think we don't do that enough of of, of valuing the different opinions and cultivating truly the curiosity. Um, is is and even here in an institution of higher learning. Uh, it's sad that that is not always the case. So, uh, good point there. So, now, so John, the North Carolina Leadership Forum um, and, any, and many of the other uh, uh, venues that you have at your disposal that you're working with, as a leader, how are you mindful of making sure um, who's at the table and who's missing from that table, and how do you get them there? Um, it's a critical mission you're trying to set up any kind of program or dialogue to be aware of who's not at the not in the room and I, I will have to admit that if I was doing it by myself I'd probably get it wrong a lot of the time mm-hmm. the thing to do to, it's kind of a it sounds like an invasive answer uh-huh. but the, the way to get everybody in the room is to get everybody in a smaller room in other words okay. Make sure that you've got different kinds of people on your steering committee, on your selection process, on your admissions team, whatever it is, who themselves have a diversity of connections. It's all about social social networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you, if, I guess you know the, this, but uh, there is a rule of thumb. It's called Dunbar's number mm-hmm. that tells us that only a few dozen people really. Uh, maybe a hundred, maybe maybe a little bit. It depends on the person. Maybe one hundred and fifty. Uh, but most of us can only have meaningful relationships with a surprisingly small number yeah. of people. Uh, this is true. Even uh, Facebook did some work on this years ago, and they illustrated something like Dunbar's number, even in, in friendship circles. Mm-hmm. Most people on Facebook have not hundreds of friends, but dozens, or even if they have hundreds or thousands of friends, they don't really interact with them. And so. When you're creating something like a leadership program or any other uh, entity that's going to purport to be representative of a community or a state, whatever, the thing to do is to make sure that you partner with others who don't have the same network. And over a little bit, because you have to have something in common, the thing to do is to go out and actively recruit people who you know know different people than you do. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, even even four or five people if recruited that way, will, among them, have connections to thousands and thousands of, of leaders, who, or emerging leaders, uh, who can go into these programs. So that's why I think that creating the committee that's going to run the board, whatever mm-hmm. it is, is such an important step. For the people who are listening, who um, particularly those who are aspiring to to get into leadership roles or expand their leadership capacity, um, what's one thing you wish someone had told you during your career slash leadership journey? Uh, well, uh, one of them is you are you are too big for your britches. <laughs> I should have been told that many times when I was young. By which I mean, you think you could do all these things well, yeah. and you cannot. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I've, I um, learned the hard way that, that I had like, I agreed to too many articles that were all due on the same week, you know, that kind of thing, or taking on more responsibilities than you could productively do. This is different from 
the horrible answer to the bad job interview question. What do you think your your greatest weaknesses are? Ooh. And the answer is something like, well, you know, I, I try too hard. I, I care too I, much. I work, I work too hard. I care too much. <laughs> I mean, so, it's such well, a useless it, question, in my yeah, opinion. <laughs> it is. But it is true, though, that, that lots of people who um, think of themselves, at least as achievers when they are young, they need to recognize that as you get older, there's an argument for narrowing your focus a little mm-hmm. bit more, at least for a time. So I like to, I, I actually enjoy doing lots of different things. But what I ended up doing was uh, changing the order that I did them. So, for example, when I was running the, a large organization, I would not have had, have had time to write novels. So mm-hmm. now that I'm running a small organization, some of my free time, I actually writing a series of fantasy novels and that's been a lot of fun yeah. and similarly back when I had young children and lots of other responsibilities it would have it would have been really uh, impossible to fit in my love of the performing arts mm-hmm. but after the kids were grown and most of them were grown I still have a stepdaughter who was 12 okay. uh, but now I teach dancing on the weekends uh, I, I used to be a tap dance teacher years ago so I've come back to that but if I had tried to do that at the same time, I was doing lots of other things. And I did try to do too many things in my 20s and 30s and ended up doing some of them poorly. Mm-hmm. It's better to do a few things well than many, many things in a mediocre fashion. So, That's what I wish that my, somebody had told my hotshot 20 year <laughs> Well, I want you to know, John, that I stopped, I stopped hearing I didn't. But after you said you were tap dancing and, and teaching dance, I was like, oh, wow. Oh, go John Hood. That's an well, image. I've got that image in my head now. <laughs> when I was a teenager, my very first job was teaching four and five year olds how to tap dance. Cool. Uh, so I now teach not quite as young. I, I teach tweens and teens, intermediate and advanced tap. And yeah. then I also teach public policy at Duke mm-hmm. to their graduate students in public policy. I haven't decided which of my two groups of, of students are more mature. <laughs> Working on it. I'm also thinking about, you know, mixing it up a little bit and lecturing my ten-year-olds on you know, the marginal utility of, of labor, and then teaching my my graduate students uh, the soft shoe. Yes. We'll just see what happens. Oh my! So my! Oh my gosh! This is I'm I'm learning so much about you today. That was beautiful. I'm I'm, I'm going to look this up now and see if I can find you out there doing some tap dancing, John. On a, a Never mind. I, that was all made up. It's a whole, a There's no need for you to go looking on the internet for videos. Oh, yes, I am. Done deal. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, so as we, we wrap this up, um, two questions I got left for you. One, um, you know, we're always looking for other resources to be able to provide folks to gain wisdom and knowledge about from, from other leaders about how to do this, how to grow our capacity. Um, any resources that, you, um, that you've used that have been wonderful or there's something that you're reading now that you'd recommend for people to, to either read or watch uh, a podcast or listen to a podcast or watch a video? Well, there are lots of things that I've, I've read over the years, and I'm just stereotypical enough to include like, classic authors, Aristotle, and stuff like that. But here's what I would suggest. If, you, if someone is interested, particularly in leadership in a political or mm-hmm. sort of social context, read The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. He's a, a professor at New York University. 
This is about how, why people disagree and how to help them disagree more productively. And I, th- I would highly recommend The Righteous Mind. Great. Well, okay, we're going to add that to our list. And um, anything that you want to share that we've not had a chance to, that I've, because I got sidetracked because I was so, so into this conversation, anything that you want to share that you haven't had an opportunity at this point? Oh, I can't imagine that a listener would want to hear anything more about me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They've exhausted all the good parts. <laughs> well, my friend, you've done some. You're, you continue to do great work for the state of North Carolina, and uh, I, for one, appreciate you and what you're doing and how you are doing it, and, and wish you well and continued good luck and all, and, um, and and really paying attention to um, the political spectrum. Um, across the across the spectrum, actually, and to how it impacts us here within this state and within this country. So thank you, um, John, for all your great work and for being um, a good leader and an effective leader. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me today for Leadership Unscripted, navigating your leadership journey with Mr. John Hood, who is president of the John William Pope Foundation. Mr. Hood shared today a lot of wisdom great experiences, and some good advice for our listeners. One, leaders need to be able to take risk, calculated and important risk, need to have vision. So the analogy of the band leader walking backwards, that sometimes you've got to turn around and put your back to your followers to be able to be future focused and to be able to have vision. And the importance of being reflective and introspective is important for a leader to be able to grow and to be able to cultivate curiosity with the members of their teams. We talked about the different types of leaders. You have good leaders. You have good leaders who are also effective leaders. You have good leaders who are also evil. Right? But all of those situations come into play in being strong leaders. Leaders must have followers. And leaders must also follow. Leaders must distinguish between giving a person what they need versus what they want. And those things can be different, but that there is a clear delineation and sometimes a muddy delineation between those two. And that we must think critically, not only as we are leading, but also as we are following and as we are coaching others to lead. And please remember that Mr. Hood shared with us that we don't need to be nutpicking. Instead, we really do need to listen and listen carefully and listen as a sign of strength that helps to grow our, our own leadership capacity, but also to grow, uh, help others to grow and to cultivate their leadership skills. Through his modeling, Mr. Hood talk has shown us that we need to be fully engaged in a bigger sense of who we are. We are thankful to have had John Hood with us on Leadership Unscripted. In addition to being currently the president of the Pope Foundation, he has also been a syndicated columnist on politics and public policy and a frequent commentator for radio and television stations. Join me for the next episode as we continue the journey of becoming successful and effective leaders. This is Virginia Hardy, the host of Leadership Unscripted, navigating your leadership journey. Thank you for joining Dr. Virginia Hardy today for Leadership Unscripted, navigating your leadership journey. Are you looking to make the leap from your current role to a leadership position? 
or you are a current leader looking to sharpen your edge, join Dr. Virginia Hardy for new podcast episodes each month for more leadership content meant to inspire, empower, and influence your individual path on leadership development.